Hello and welcome to the third episode of Fantastic Fights and Where to Find Them. This is the podcast where I, an unemployed middle-aged man, try to recapture my youth by playing through all the fighting fantasy books I loved as a child. This episode, I'm taking on The Forest of Doom, which was written by Ian Livingstone and illustrated by Malcolm Barter. Released in 1983, the cover, one of the all-time classic fighting fantasy covers, was by Ian McCabe. So, without any further ado, let's roll up a character and dive straight in to The Forest of Doom. I've rolled up a character, so uh, it's a classic fighting fantasy character in the sense that we've got skill, stamina, luck, and one potion. So my skill is 9, not great. My stamina is 16, also not great. My luck is 8, which is also not great. I've therefore decided to take a potion of luck. So with that all out of the way, I think we better jump straight in. You are an adventurer, a sword for hire, and have been roaming the northern borderlands of your kingdom. Having always spurned the dullness of village life, you now wander the lands in search of wealth and danger. Despite the long walks and rough outdoor life, you are content with your unknown destiny. The world holds no fears for you as you are a skillful warrior, well practiced in the art of slaying evil men and beasts with your trusty sword. Not once during the last ten days since entering the northern borderlands have you set eyes upon another person. This does not worry you at all. You are happy with your own company and enjoy the slow, sunny days hunting, eating and sleeping. Kind of a lot like me, to be fair. I'm never happier than when I've gone ten days without seeing another human being. It is evening, and having feasted on a dinner of rabbits spit-roasted on an open fire, you settle down to sleep beneath your sheepskin blanket. There's a full moon, and the light sparkles on the blade of your broadsword, skewered into the ground by your side. You gaze at it, wondering when you will next have to wipe the blood of some vile creature from its sharp edges. These are strange lands inhabited by weird and loathsome beasts. Goblins. Trolls, even dragons. As the flame of your campfire gently dies, you begin to drift asleep and images of screaming, green-faced trolls flicker through your mind. Suddenly, in the bushes to your left, you hear the loud crack of a twig breaking under a clumsy foot. You leap up and grab your sword from the ground. You stand motionless but alert, ready to pounce on your unseen adversary. Then you hear a groan, followed by the dull thud of a body falling to the ground. Is it a trap? Slowly, you walk over to the bush where the noise is coming from and carefully pull back the branches. You look down and see a little old man with a great bushy beard, his face contorted with pain. You crouch down to remove the iron helmet covering his balding head and notice Two crossbow bolts protruding from the stomach of his plump, chainmail-clad torso. Oh dear. Picking him up, you carry him over to the fire and stir the dying embers back to life. After covering him with the sheepskin blanket, you manage to get the old man to drink a little water. He coughs and moans. He sits up rigid, eyes staring fixedly ahead and starts to shout, I'll get them. 
I'll get them. Don't you fear, Gillibrand. Bigleg is coming to bring you the hammer. Oh, yes, indeed I am. Oh, yes. The dwarf, whose name you presume to be Bigleg, with him calling himself Bigleg and all, is obviously delirious from the poison-tipped bolts lodged in his stomach. You watch as he slumps down again to the ground, then whisper his name in his ear. His eyes stare unblinkingly at you, and again he starts to shout. Ambush! Look out, ambush! The hammer! Take the hammer to Gillibrand! Save the dwarves! His eyes half close and the pain seems to ease a little, and the delirium subsides. He speaks to you again in a low whisper. Help us, friend! Take the hammer to Gillibrand! Only the hammer will unite our people against the trolls. We were on our way to Darkwood in search of the hammer. Ambushed by the little people. Others killed. The map in my pouch will take you to the home of Yastromo, the master mage of these parts. He has great magics for sale to protect you against the creatures of Darkwood. Take my gold. I beg you, find the hammer. Take it to Gillibran, Lord of Stonebridge. You will be well rewarded. Big Leg opens his mouth to start another sentence, but nothing comes out except his last dying breath. You sit down and ponder Big Leg's words. Who is Gillibran? Who is Yastromo? What is all the fuss about the dwarfish hammer? You reach over to the still body of Big Leg and remove the pouch from the leather belt around his waist. Inside you find 30 gold pieces and a map. It's not the most helpful map I've ever seen. In the, at the bottom it's got Yaztromo's tower. At the top it's got Stonebridge. There's a couple of rivers marked. And in the middle there's Darkwood Forest. And there's absolutely no information about Darkwood Forest other than there's a river going through the middle of it. Yeah, that, that, that's a wildly unhelpful map. Jingling his coins in your hand, you think of the possible rewards which may await you just for returning a hammer to a village of dwarves. This seems a little presumptuous. You decide to try and find the hammer in Darkwood Forest. It's been a few weeks since your last good battle, and what is more, you are likely to be well paid for this one. With your mind made up, you settle down to sleep, having taken back the sheepskin blanket from poor Bigleg. In the morning, you bury the old dwarf and gather up your possessions. You examine the map, which is still wildly unhelpful. Look up to the sun and find your bearings. Whistling merrily, you head off south at a good pace, eager to meet this man, Yaz Tromo, and see what he has to offer. Okay, so we're off to an intriguing start. Your walk to Yastromo's tower takes a little over half a day, and you arrive at his stone tower, home, dirty and hungry. As the tower is set back on the edges of Darkwood, some 50 metres away from the path you have been following, it is difficult to find. Finally, you walk up to the huge oak door, somewhat relieved to find that it does exist and that Bigleg had not been speaking wildly in his delirium. A large brass bell and gong hang from the stone archway. As you ring the bell, a shiver runs down your spine and you realise that the loud boom invades a deep silence which you had not noticed before. 
There are no sounds of birds or animals to be heard. You wait anxiously at the door and hear slow footsteps descending stairs from the tower above. A small wooden slot in the door slides open and two eyes appear and examine you. Well, who are you? demands a grumpy voice through the hole. You answer that you are an adventurer in search of the master mage Yaz Tromo, intending to purchase magical items from him to combat the creatures of Darkwood Forest. Oh, well, in that case, if you're interested in buying up some of my merchandise, you'd better come up. I am Yaz Tromo. Thought the uh, mention of money might turn him a little bit more civil, and indeed I am correct. There is a, a rather nice uh, little illustration of Yaz Tromo's tower. Um, the artist has made some great, great use of negative space. It's really, really uh, appealing and it looks suitably ornate and suitably weird. I rather like it. Yastromo then turns and slowly climbs the stone stairs. Will you follow him up the stairs or draw your sword and attack him? Now, it's been many years since I last played Forest of Doom, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that trying to shiv the master mage Yaz Tromo in the back. That's not going to go too well for me. So I'm going to do the very obviously sensible thing and follow him up the stairs. I feel like this one is, is definitely leading us in gently. You follow the huffing and puffing old man in his tattered robes up the spiral staircase to a large room at the top of the tower. Shelves, cupboards and cabinets line the walls, all filled with bottles, jars, weapons, armour and all manner of strange artefacts. Yaz Tromo shuffles past the general clutter and slumps down in an old oak chair. He reaches into his top pocket and pulls out a fragile pair of gold-rimmed spectacles. Placing these on his nose, he picks up a piece of slate and chalk from a table next to the chair and begins to write frantically. He hands you the slate. So, we've got quite a list, so I'm going to just run through them very quickly. I'm not going to indicate the price. They're all between two and three gold, so probably uh, enough to buy quite a lot of them. But there's a potion of healing, plant control, potion of stillness, potion of insect control, potion of anti-poison, holy water, a ring of light, boots of leaping, rope of climbing, net of entanglement, armband of strength, Glove of Missile Dexterity, Rod of Water Finding, Garlic Buds, Headband of Concentration, Fire Capsules, and Nose Filters. He tells you that all the instructions for use are clearly written on the labels attached to the items, together with their suggested use. He sighs and tells you that unfortunately, the magic in the items only works once, but they are the best you can buy for the money. So, uh, if you decide to buy any of the items... Pay for them by reducing the amount of gold on your adventure sheet and add the items to the relevant sections on it. So I have purchased a potion of healing, some holy water, the boots of leaping, the garlic, the nose filters, the armband of strength, the ring of light, the anti-poison, potion of stillness and the rope of climbing, which leaves me with a total of six gold pieces once I've bought all that stuff. I've gone completely wild because, like, I mean, this is... Clearly some of them are going to be useful, some of them aren't. I've tried to kind of go for the ones that look obviously useful, but we will see. We will see. I've almost certainly, going on previous form, made a whole bunch of mistakes and forgotten to buy something really obviously useful. Yaz Tromo then asks you for the reason for the purchase of the items. 
you tell him your story and your decision to continue the quest of the luckless big leg. Ah, yes, Yaztromo says slowly, rubbing his chin. I have heard that the good dwarves of Stonebridge had lost their fabled warhammer. Without it, the king is unable to arouse his people, despite the fact that hill trolls threaten their village. Rumour has it that an envious king of another village of dwarves sent an eagle to Stonebridge to steal the hammer, which it managed to do. But as it flew back over Darkwood, it was attacked by death hawks, and the hammer dropped into the forest and was lost. Two forest goblins found the hammer, but could not decide who was going to keep it. They wrestled for hours, but finally gave up. Then they discovered that the handle unscrewed from the head, and the argument was settled. One kept the head, the other kept the handle. They then parted, each happy with his new treasure. I feel like the goblin who just had the handle of a warhammer probably got the bum deal there. It seems to me that making a new handle is easier than making a new head. I could be wrong. Like, the head of a warhammer is made of metal, which is hard, and the handle of a warhammer can be made from wood which is not as hard. Stop me if I'm getting too technical. Anyway, uh, the goblins then parted, each happy with his new treasure. Who knows if they still have them? So I'm afraid your problems are doubled. I can tell you that the head is made of bronze. There you go, metal, just as I suspected. And the handle is made of polished ebony. That's almost wood. Both head and handle have the letter G inscribed on them. Your task is not easy. Good luck. You thank Yaztromo and leave the room by the spiral staircase. Outside in the bright light, you notice the dead quietness again. A narrow path leads northwards from the tall grass surrounding Yaztromo's tower into the dense undergrowth of Darkwood Forest. In a few strides, you are surrounded by the dark and tangled forest. Stones and knotted roots seem to hide in the shadows, and you can almost believe that they are trying to trip you up. The light fades quickly and the air becomes moist and unpleasant. Awful word, moist. Deeper and deeper you go into the gloom. Eventually, the path forks on either side of a huge old tree. You can go either east or west. Whichever one I pick will be the wrong one. That's just how this works. So I'm going to very quickly, I'm not even going to think about it at all. We're just going to go east. Why east? I instinctively turn right. The narrow path continues to cut its way through the tangled forest. Strange animal cries and noises echo through the trees. At last, the path widens to approximately a metre across. Soon, you arrive at a moss-covered wooden signpost on the top of which sits a large crow. The arms of the signpost read north and east. Just as you are deciding which way to continue, you hear the words, Good afternoon. You look up in the direction of the voice and see the crow looking down at you inquisitively. Good afternoon, you reply slowly, feeling a little foolish. The crow speaks again, asking which way you are headed. You reply that you are looking for two goblins, small, sinewy creatures with brown, scaly skin. One gold piece will buy my advice, states the crow confidently. Hmm. Should quickly point out that there's another lovely, lovely illustration, again, making really interesting use of negative space. Like the, the crow is actually done largely in white with some beautiful, beautiful stippling to suggest 
feathers. Like it's just really, really nice, really, really nice. And it's sort of regarding you with this beady, intelligent eye, which feels very on brand for a Corvid. So uh, will we pay the crow for its advice, ignore the crow and turn north, or ignore the crow and carry on east? Well, I've still got some gold. I thought I might need some gold, so I'm going to pay the crow for its advice. You put the gold piece on top of the signpost, as requested by the crow, after which it says, Go north. You ask the crow why it needs gold pieces, and it replies that it needs 30 gold pieces to pay Yaztromo to turn it back into a human again. You bid the crow farewell. If you want to turn north as advised by the crow, you can. If you'd rather continue eastwards, you can do that too. Well, a crow that was once a human that has been turned into a crow by a wizard... I mean, what's more trustworthy than that? Um, he's definitely not a wrong one, so I'm going to do exactly what he says. I'm going to go north. Walking along the path, you hear footsteps and arguing voices ahead of you. If you wish to meet the owners, you can. If you would rather hide in the bushes to let them walk by, you can do that also. Arguing voices could be goblins. I'm so nosy. I'm so very nosy in this sort of thing. I can't quite bring myself to just let them walk by. Discretion for me is never the better part of valor. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to meet them. I'm actually going to meet them. You draw your sword and prepare to meet the owners of the arguing voices. Two tall, spindly creatures appear, clad in tattered cloth over which they wear chainmail jackets. They see you and instantly stop their argument. They are hobgoblins and draw their swords to attack you. Time for a Barney. I knew I should have let them walk by. I knew I should have let them walk by. They've got really 1970s hair. Not relevant, but just interesting. Good illustration, yet again. Okay, I shall pause for the fighting. I successfully defeated the Hobgoblins, although I did lose two stamina points, reducing my current stamina to 14. You search through the pockets of the Hobgoblins and find three gold pieces. Get in. A tiny brass flute and two maggot-ridden biscuits. There's also a necklace made of mouse skulls around one of their necks. If you require any of these items, add them to your equipment list. I will be adding all of those items to my equipment list. You never know when you might need some maggot-ridden biscuits. To the left of the path, you notice a large hole in the ground with a diameter of some three metres. Walking over to the edge of the hole, you see it sloping off into the depths of the earth. Do you wish to walk down into the hole or continue walking northwards up the path? I'm going to investigate the hole. What possible danger could live in a three metre wide hole? I'm sure it'll be just someone lovely. As you descend into the hole, you notice large amounts of slime secreted by some huge creature. If you wish to climb back out of the hole and continue walking northwards up the path, you can. Or do you wish to carry on down the hole? I mean, I don't want to go down the slimy, secreted, the whole huge creature. I, oh, but I want to find out. I hate not knowing things. I mean, obviously, I'm going down the hole. The slope is steep and you slip on the slime, tumbling head over heels down the hole to the bottom into a large earthen cavern 
and you do not want to know how many times I had to say that sentence to get it right. You jump to your feet and are alarmed to see a huge, shiny tip of a poison barb on the tail end of a huge stingworm coming straight at you. The stingworm is about five metres long and has huge yellow segments, but all you care about is protecting yourself from the barb. There is no time to scramble out of the hole. You must draw your sword and fight. Uh, the stingworm has a skill of eight and a stamina of seven. And the illustration is literally just an earthworm with a sting. I mean, <laughs> does what it says on the tin, I guess. I have dispatched the stingworm and sadly it stung me twice. So my stamina is now down to ten. Really should try to be a bit less inquisitive, but... <sighs> I hate not knowing things. You walk around the lifeless bulk of the worm to examine the contents of its lair. There are several skeletons, perhaps those belonging to other unfortunate adventurers. By the side of one of them, you find a leather backpack. Inside the backpack, you find four gold pieces. Get in. And a small corked bottle containing a colourless liquid. Do you wish to drink the bottle? Or just leave the dark cavern and scramble back up to the path again, just taking the gold. I'm going to obviously drink the liquid. I don't know why I even bothered to pretend to think about that. Glug, glug, glug. You look at the bottle in your hand and then quickly gulp down the contents. You wait several seconds for some reaction, but nothing happens. However, when you come to pick up your sword, which you had put down to examine the backpack, a surge of confidence runs through your body. It's cocaine, isn't it? It's literally liquid cocaine. Oh no, no. The liquid is a potion of weapon skill which will allow you to add one point to future dice rolls when computing your own attack strength during combat. Its effects will last for the next two combat encounters. Taking the gold, you scramble up out of the earthen cavern to the path above and continue your journey northwards. That went pretty well. Why shouldn't it? Like, in my real life, I will drink basically anything that's put in front of me, and that certainly never ended extremely badly. Never at all. At last, the trees begin to thin out, and shafts of sunlight beam down through the gaps on either side of the path. As the path widens, you see a large cave entrance set a few yards back on the right. If you want to examine the cave, you can. If you want to continue northwards up the path, you can do that too. I am enjoying being outside, even if... Figuratively speaking, obviously I'm not outside, I'm inside where it's safe. But yeah, I'm enjoying the, the outdoorsy setting, even if it does mainly just involve caves. Slowly you peer into the cave and see the huge shape of an ogre walking slowly over to a wicker cage with a bowl of water in his great hand. He is dressed in animal furs and carries a stone club in his belt. There appears to be a small creature jumping around inside the cave. You can pick up a rock and throw it at the ogre, rush in and attack the ogre with your sword, or leave the cave and continue up the path. I mean, part of me wants to just leave them to it on the off chance that this is entirely consensual and I'm intruding on a very private moment. But realistically, in a fighting fantasy book aimed at children, that seems unlikely. So I could try and throw a rock at the ogre. I mean, in the real world, I wouldn't trust myself to throw anything more than a couple of centimetres, but we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll throw a rock at the ogre, probably merely anger him, but I can always stab him afterwards anyway. Do you possess a glove of missile dexterity? 
No, I do not. You pick up a good-sized rock off the floor and take aim. You throw the rock with all your might at the ogre, but you are dismayed, and in all fairness unsurprised, to see it fly past his head and crash against the far wall of the cave. You curse, but decide nevertheless to rush into the cave and attack. You draw your sword as you enter the cave. The ogre throws down the wooden bowl and lifts the large stone club from his belt. He grunts and lopes towards you. Prepare for battle. The ogre has a skill of eight and a stamina of twelve, so I'm going away now. I may be some time. I have defeated the ogre. Um, I'm now down to six stamina. Bit of jeopardy this time out. I think previous episodes, I've never really lost a great deal of stamina, but I'm, I'm yeah, I'm very bad at fighting, it would seem, uh, which is probably not an ideal survival trait in a professional adventurer, but, oh well, we will press on. As the ogre slumps to the ground, the creature in the cage jumps even more frantically about than before. You can take a closer look at the creature, search through the contents of the cave, or leave immediately if you're some kind of nutter. Let's have a look at the creature first. Inside the cage, a small, sinewy creature with a brown, scaly skin is jumping up and down. He is a goblin! I didn't want to kind of spoil the surprise, but I had sort of guessed as much. Round his neck hangs a black, shiny rod on a leather cord. If you want to unlock the cage, you can. If you want to leave the cage and continue northwards, you can do that too. Well, I'm going to unlock it, obviously. You unlock the door and step back, drawing your sword in case the goblin tries to attack you. He picks up a wooden stool and, waving it in the air, kicks the door open and charges at you, screaming, you must fight. Yeah, yeah, not the sharpest tool in the box, the goblin, I think. Um, he's only got a skill of five and a stamina of four, so this won't take long. Indeed, it did not take long. I stabbed him twice and he died. I'm slightly annoyed that I used up my second dose of magical skill on such a weak encounter, but hey-ho. You bend down over the lifeless body of the mad goblin and examine the rod around his neck. The rod is made of ebony and there is a screw thread at one end. You are excited to see the letter G neatly inscribed at the other end of what must be the handle of the dwarfish warhammer. You put the find in your backpack. Add one luck point. Do you wish to search the contents of the cave? I surely do. There is not much of interest to be found in the cave. A straw bed, stone jars, a table and a chair are all that is immediately visible. But on a stone shelf above the bed, a small silver box catches your eye. Do you want to open the silver box or leave the cave and go north? I mean, this is so obviously a trap. So, so obviously a trap. This is like when I fell to my death in the previous episode because I tried to get the very obviously trapped chest. And I have learned nothing, absolutely nothing, because I'm going to open the silver box. You gently prise the lid off the box, but as you do so, a yellow gas escapes and envelops your face. Do you possess nose filters? Yes, I do. The gas is toxic and your eyes start to water. You hold your breath long enough to find the nose filters and slip them into place inside your nostrils. You inhale tentatively, but all is well. 
After a while, the gas cloud around your face fades away. You put the silver box in your backpack and leave the cave to continue your quest. See, I deliberately took the nose filters because I was looking at the list and I thought, I'm exactly the sort of person who's going to walk straight into a whole bunch of poison gas. I guess knowing that you're quite stupid is a form of cleverness. Walking along the path, you do not notice a rope noose hidden beneath some fallen leaves ahead of you. Your foot catches in a noose and suddenly you are hauled into the air by the rope, which is tied to a sprung tree. In a second, you are hanging upside down, suspended by your trapped foot. Test your luck. I am lucky. If you are lucky, which I am, your sword remains in its scabbard and you are able to use it to cut yourself down from the man trap. You get to your feet and curse, brushing the dirt from your clothes with your hands. You are tempted to wait around to discover who set the trap, but decide against it. You continue northwards. You notice a knotted vine hanging down to the ground from a tree on your left. You look up and see a roughly made treehouse amid the branches. If you want to climb up the vine to the treehouse, you can. If you wish to continue walking north, you can do that too. Well, you know, without wanting to belabor a point, I love a treehouse. I really, really love a treehouse. Even though I'm actually quite scared of heights, I still love a treehouse. So up we go. You reach the top of the vine and scramble onto a wooden platform. A sheet made from leaves and ferns covers the entrance to a small covered living area. As you approach, the sheet is thrown back, and from behind it steps a large and hairy ape-like creature wearing only an animal hide loincloth. He is holding a large bone in his right hand and grunts at you. He is an ape-man. You may draw your sword and attack him, or jump off the platform to the ground five metres below. In all fairness, I'm the one who's rude in this situation. I have just barged into his house. He's entitled to be a bit cross. So I think I will offer my apologies and hurl myself off the platform. That was a foolish thing to do. Falling to the ground is becoming a bit of a bad habit. It's also beginning to hurt. Nice callback to the trap previously. I like it. Lose three stamina points for your injuries. If you're still alive, you get up and continue northwards along the path. I am still alive. That would have been a hilariously ignominious way to die. Now down to my last three stamina points, but I do have a potion of healing. So, uh, yeah, we've got that in reserve. Soon the path leads out of the trees onto a large plain with tall grasses. Beyond it you see rising ground and further off some low hills. The path splits and goes in three directions. You want to go west, east or continue north. I'm going to go west because I went east last time and I feel like going north is quick. It's not going to be the most interesting way around. I want to go the most interesting way around. Basically I want to weave drunkenly through this forest. The path ends at another junction. The way south leads back into the forest, so you decide to head north. It looks like I'm going north after all. Walking quickly along the path through waist-high grass, you arrive at another junction. Do you want to continue north, or do you want to go west? Go west, young man, go west. From not too far ahead comes the sharp noise of barking dogs drawing near. Suddenly a brown fox with eyes wide open in fear dashes past you running east. The frantic yelping of the dogs gets louder. If you wish to face the oncoming pack of dogs, you can. 
If you would rather hide in the tall grasses off the path and let them run past in pursuit of the fox, you can do that too. I don't have a problem with dogs hunting a fox if it's just dogs. Dogs got a dog. Fox is going to fox. You know, that's just normal. I don't feel like I'm going to interrupt that. So I'm going to hide. But if it turns out that there are people there as well, that will make me very cross. As you crouch down in the tall grass, you hear the sound of galloping hooves amid the barking. Then you see the legs of four hounds and one horse race past you in a cloud of dust. The sound of the hunt quickly fades into the distance and you step out onto the path again. Wondering about the poor old fox, you set off west once more. See, that makes me very angry. Yeah, I wish I decided to stay on the path. But with three stamina points, it would almost certainly have ended with me taking the place of the fox rather than saving the fox and going about my business. And sometimes you've got to swallow your principles. Yeah, not happy about it, but hey, you soon arrive at a crossroads. Way south leads back to the forest, so you decide to ignore it. You may either keep going west or head north. We'll go west again. Go west, young man. Is that a song? I feel like it's a song. Ahead, you see that the path ends at the door of a large hut made of dried mud. It has a domed roof and a single window. You peer through the window and you see a large man with dark skin sitting at a table in the middle of the hut. He is bare-chested and is flexing the muscles of his arms. Great. It's a crossfit guy, isn't it? Do you wish to enter the hut or do you want to return to the junction in the path? God, if I go in, he's just going to talk to me about whey powder and protein shakes and carb loading. Oh, still, I feel honour-bound to investigate, so I will. As you enter the hut, the big man smiles. He looks pleased to see you and starts to speak in a deep voice, which obviously I can't do because I don't have a deep voice. I'll try. Welcome, stranger. My name is Quinn, and I earn my living by my arms. Would you care for a little wager, perhaps at arm wrestling? I mean, I'd prefer to wager at something where I've got an outside chance of winning, but I guess arm wrestling is what's on offer. So I will accept the challenge. Ha 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 Do you possess an armband of strength? I surely, surely do. Oh, that's made my day. That's absolutely made my day. Cheating at arm wrestling. What could be finer in life? Quinn explains that he will wager some dust of levitation against an item or coins to the value of ten gold pieces. As you sit down at the table opposite him, you deftly slip the armband of strength onto your arm. You put your elbow onto the table and lock hands with him. His grip is like an iron jaw and his dark slanted eyes look confident. His biceps bulge and he gives the signal for the contest to begin. You start to push his arm down and are amazed at your own strength. It's not only my own strength, is it? It's cheap strength that I've stolen from a... It's the armband strength. That's the point I'm trying to make. It's not really my strength. It's the armband strength. Sweat breaks out on his forehead and you can see the disbelief and the pain on his face. You push harder and force his arm onto the table in defeat. Quinn stands up and walks silently to a wooden chest at the back of the hut. He lifts the lid and pulls out a small glass vial. He hands it to you and walks back to the table where he slumps in his chair looking thoroughly dejected. I almost feel sorry for him. But he's clearly a gym bro, and I can't quite bring myself to. The dust in the vial sparkles in the light, and you put it into your backpack and leave the hut. 
You arrive back at the crossroads. Ignoring the way south back to the forest, you may go north or continue east. I'll go east. We're trying to crisscross the forest in the least efficient way possible so that I ideally arrive slightly too late to save the dwarves from the terrible fate, uh, but having had a really nice holiday. Walking along the path, you notice marks in the ground made by the hooves of a horse heading east. You soon arrive at another junction in the path. The hoof marks lead south back to the forest. You decide to head north. Oh, I was hoping I could follow the hunter and give him a piece of my mind. Sadly, not to be. In the distance, to the right of the path, you see large birds circling in the sky. As you get closer, you recognise them as vultures. Do you wish to step off the path to see what or whom the vultures are interested in? Or do you want to ignore them and continue walking north? Well, I want to step off the path, don't I? You know me well enough by now, listeners. You know that what I'm going to do is always step off the path. Ahead in the grass, you hear a low moan. You look up to see the vultures patiently waiting overhead. A few steps further and you see the ugly sight of a huge man with muscles like knotted iron staked out on the ground. His arms and legs are tied to four large wooden pegs driven deep into the ground. The man is naked except for a small loincloth. His skin is badly blistered from the sun. His face and chest show the bloodied signs of cruel torture. So, again, there's the vague possibility I might be intruding on a private moment. His captors will not have gained the information they sought from him because he is a, all in capitals, barbarian. Do you wish to cut him free or leave him in his agony and return to the path? I will cut him free. If it turns out that this was all a, a misunderstanding and he was he was having a perfectly nice time, I can always tie him up again. You cut the thick ropes holding the barbarian. He grunts and sits up to rub his wrists and ankles. He looks at you and sneers. He is either delirious or ungrateful, for he pulls out one of the wooden stakes from the ground and turns to attack you. In many ways, the fact that the barbarian was in capitals like the way all the monsters are done in capitals was a very obvious clue that he was going to attack me. If it had been written in lowercase, then it might have been a toss-up. But as it is, he was always going to attack me. He's got a skill of nine. He's got a stamina of seven. I've got three stamina left and a skill of nine. So wish me luck. Listener, I am very sad to report that the barbarian killed us. And in fact, we didn't land a single blow upon his sweaty, oiled thews, uh, which is a shame. However, all is not lost, because if you remember from the previous episode, whenever I take a death, whenever I take a death in this new format, I simply do a forfeit and uh, go back into the action. And on this occasion, the forfeit I've chosen is pulling out a nose hair with a pair of tweezers. Just done, and ho, oh, yes, wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. And my nose is really, really running, which is very unpleasant. Being north of 40, uh, my nose hairs have the texture and tensile strength of steel cables. So uh, yanking that sucker out, not something I want to be repeating any time soon. So uh, that character has died, so I've taken the opportunity to roll up another character, and this one considerably better, with a skill of 12, a stamina of 22, and a luck of 11. 
if I'd rolled that character up first, none of this hideous unpleasantness would have gone on. Uh, but we will continue the adventure from the point at which we would have won, having now defeated the Barbarian. I, I hope that makes some kind of sense. This is the last time you are going to do anybody a favour for some time. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. Uh, returning to the path, you head north again. Gradually, the grasses around you become shorter as the ground gently starts to rise. Ahead, you can hear the sound of flowing water. Soon, you reach the bank of a slow-flowing river. The river is very shallow, and stepping stones cross it to the far bank, where the path continues north into the distance. Will you cross the river by the stepping stones, or wade through the shallow water across the river? I mean, those stepping stones, they were put there for a reason, um, and I'm not the kind of cavalier character to ignore a set of stepping stones that are clearly the approved manner of crossing this river. You step carefully along the slippery stones to the other side of the river. You can see that the path continues north into the hills, but as it is getting dark, you decide to make camp for the night under a large, solitary tree to the right of the path. You build a large fire and settle down to sleep with your sword by your side. You have been asleep for about an hour when the soft noise of fluttering wings wakes you up. You sit up and grab your sword, and in the light of the full moon, you can see three large shapes flying towards you. They look like large bats, but as they swoop in close, you see the unmistakable fangs of vampire bats. Do you possess any garlic buds? I surely do. I had a feeling we'd be coming across something of a vampiric nature. You reach quickly into your backpack and pull out the garlic buds. The vampire bats close in on you, but veer away at the last second, screeching loudly. They hover above you, eager to drink your blood, but the garlic keeps them at bay. Eventually, they fly off in search of some other prey. Leaving the garlic by your side, you settle down to sleep again. In the morning, you collect your belongings and head north along the path. Whenever there's anything weirdly mundane in a list of items to buy, I feel like it's usually a pretty good call to buy it. You know, if the guy says... I have for sale this knife, which is enchanted to slay werewolves. I have for sale this magical cloak that makes you invisible. And also this delicious pie. I feel like you've got to take the pie. You've got to take the pie and not just because pie is a good thing. So anyway, that's my my top tip from a man who literally just died in this game. So, uh, yeah, make of that what you will. The ground is quite steep as the path wends its way into the hills. By the time you reach the top, the sun is quite hot. All around in the distance, you see the green circle of darkwood forest. Mist still hangs in a tall grass behind you, but ahead you see a valley floor bathed in sunlight. All is quiet. As you start down the far side of the hill, you see a junction in the path. You may either continue north, down the hill, or go west along the new branch. I feel like we're going to go west. We are definitely going to go west because, I mean, there's, there's a method to it. Like, the exit of the forest is, I think, to the north. We want to investigate all of the twists and turns in order to, to have the best chance of finding the head to go with the haft of the hammer. The path leads along a ridge of the hill and ends at another junction. You see that the way south leads back to the river, so you decide to head north again. The path runs through a narrow gorge between two hills. You feel vulnerable and draw your sword, expecting to be ambushed at any moment. 
Unfortunately, because you are concentrating on watching the sides of the gorge, you do not see a small patch of leaves and branches on the path ahead. Your foot goes right through the thin covering of a bear trap, and you plunge four metres to the bottom of a rocky pit. To add to your misfortune, a wooden stake with a sharp tip points out of the centre of the pit. Test your luck. I have a luck of eleven, and I have just rolled a twelve. If you are unlucky, the point of the stake pierces your leg as you land. Lose two stamina points for the fall, and a further two stamina points for the injury to your leg. Ow. Good job. My new character has got loads of sauna. Do you possess boots of leaping? Yes. Yes, I do. I mean, I seem to have done pretty well on the buying magical tat phase of this adventure. Less well on the staying alive bit of this adventure. The pit is circular with smooth sides and you are weak from your fall. You reach into your backpack and pull out the brown leather boots. They're very light on your feet. You crouch down and in one mighty leap you are out of the pit. You dust yourself off and continue your walk north down the gorge. Continuing down the gorge, you see the handle of a sword sticking out from a large rock by the side of the path. Do you wish to try and pull the sword free? Why, yes, I would like the option to become rightful king of all England. You take hold of the sword and place your foot against the rock. Roll two dice. If the number rolled is equal or less than your current skill, the sword slowly slides out of the rock. The sword slowly slides out of the rock. Another mini tongue twister. Let's have a check. Yes, three. It easily slides out. Let's have a look. Am I the rightful king of England? I am not. But the sword is magnificent and was obviously made by a master craftsman. It feels powerful in your hand. Add two points to your current skill score for the enchanted blade. Cutting your new weapon through the air, you set off north down the gorge. Well, that's actually better than being king of England, especially given that I'm a Republican. I'd much rather have a magic sword that's good at stabbing things than one that conveyed terrible, terrible responsibility. This gives me an effective skill of 14. Like, I may die from compound stupidity, but I don't think I'm going to die from being stabbed anytime soon. Between the hills, you see the flat green valley floor stretching out ahead of you, and beyond, a sinister wall of trees, darkwood forest. On the other side of the trees lies Stonebridge, your journey's end. Arriving on the valley floor, the path ends at a junction. If you want to head west, you can. If you want to head east, you also can. I'm going to go east. Your walk along the Green Valley floor brings you to a junction in the path. You can head either north or east. We'll go east again. You continue your walk along the valley floor, passing a junction in the path which leads south to the hills. You soon arrive at another junction. Again, one of the branches leads south to the hills. You can head either north or east. We're going to keep going east. Leading along the quiet valley floor, the path comes to an end at a junction. The way south leads back into the hills, so you decide against it and head north. That was the least exciting exploration I think we've done so far. Remarkable. The valley floor is green and pleasant, and you wonder why such a tranquil place should be the home of so many loathsome creatures. 
Walking along the path, you see in the distance the portly shape of a balding man dressed in long brown robes heading in your direction. As he gets closer, you see that he is a friar. You can either strike up a conversation with him or walk past him with a nod of the head. Well, we'll, we'll have a chat. Like anyone who's not trying to do as an immediate murder is worth talking to. The friar is very nervous and jittery and shuffles from side to side as you start to speak. You ask him why he is so distraught and he tells you that his sacred brass bell has been stolen. As payment for its return, he is willing to offer a magic healing potion. Do you have a brass bell? I do not. So uh, he's going to be very, very disappointed, which you shouldn't feel bad about because that's true of the lion's share of people who have ever met me. You tell him that you are sorry, but you have not seen his brass bell. The poor old friar frowns and then asks if you'd like to give him one gold piece for a good cause. Yeah, sure, why not? I can spare one gold piece. The friar smiles and says, bless you. He bows and sets off south along the path, whistling as he goes. Add two luck points and head north. That is my luck back to maximum. In the distance, you see the dark brown wall of trees looming up before you. The path leads directly into Darkwood Forest and soon starts to twist and turn between tangled roots and bushes. The path eventually splits. Do you want to continue north or head west? You will go west. Your walk west is arduous but uneventful. You pass two branches off the path leading south, which you ignore. Eventually, you arrive at a junction. And again, you ignore the way south and you head north. Amidst the trees to the left of the path, you see a small stone building covered with ivy and moss. Do you wish to examine the building or carry on north? I wish to examine the building. The building measures only three metres by three metres and has no windows. The door is made of stone and looks very solid. There is no handle and it does not appear that there is another way to enter the building. Then you notice a tiny keyhole in the stone door. Do you possess a silver key? I do not. Oh well, that had the feeling of an important building. I'm going to go out on a limb and say the other bit of the hammer might be in there. Still, nothing to be done. It was a silver box, but no key. Oh, I wonder where, I'm, where the silver key is. You may either try and charge the door down or return to the path. We're going to try and charge the door down. Oh, good news, good news. You step back and then charge at the door. Roll two dice. If the number rolled is equal to or less than both your luck and skill scores, the door flies open. And it does fly open. Inside, you see stone stairs leading down from the door into gloomy depths. You cannot see a thing down the stairs. Do you wish to descend or leave the building and return to the path? Utterly convinced that, that we're on the verge of finding the other bit of a hammer. You step carefully down the stone stairs, feeling your way as you go. This is very exciting. Slowly, your eyes become accustomed to the dark and you begin to make out shapes at the bottom of the stairs. You are standing in a small square room with a low ceiling. The floor is thick with dust and there are cobwebs everywhere. In the middle of the room, there is what appears to be a large stone box measuring approximately two metres by one metre. The top of it is a great stone slab. Along one of the rough stone walls, you find a small alcove with a candle in it. You may either light the candle 
We'll return up the stairs. Now then, there's a, a clue here in the picture, because in the picture, although it's not mentioned in the text, you can see a small diminutive skeleton, which clearly has sharp, spiky teeth, much like a goblin might have. So I think I'm definitely going to light the candle. The light from the candle casts eerie shadows around the room. In the yellow light, you see the face of an old man carved in the stone slab top of the box. Ian Livingston does love an old man. Then you notice the leg of a skeleton protruding from the shadows in the far corner of the room. You walk over to the skeleton to inspect it. The skeleton is small and the skull has sharp protruding teeth. It could be the skeleton of either a goblin or an orc. You walk over to the stone box. The slab on top looks like it could be moved. Do you wish to try and lift the stone slab? I definitely, definitely do. Apologies if you can hear a cat yowling in the background, but he hasn't been fed for a good ten minutes and is absolutely furious about it. You try with all your might to move the stone slab, but it will not budge. Do you have any dust of levitation? Ha <laughs> yes, I do. Oh, Jimbro did me a solid. Never knew it would be so important to cheat at arm wrestling. You take from your backpack the glass vial containing the sparkling dust and sprinkle it on the stone slab. Slowly, the stone slab starts to rise into the air. You peer into the box and you are horrified to see a rotting corpse lying there. Ragged clothes cover a skeletal body with a loose flesh hanging from it. You have lifted the lid off a coffin containing some cursed undead creature. You jump back in horror as you see its eyes flick open. You are in a crypt made foul by some unknown follower of darkness. Slowly, the creature rises out of its coffin and moves towards you with outstretched arms. Do you have any holy water? Hell yeah, I do. I have pints of the stuff. You reach into your backpack and pull out the small bottle of holy water. Okay, maybe not pints then. Quickly removing the cork, you throw the water at the advancing ghoul. Thick smoke rises into the air from the burn marks made by the holy water on the putrid flesh of the ghoul. The ghoul appears to be in great pain, but through its wide open mouth, no sound is heard. That's an eerie image. Wish the cat had take lessons from that. It crawls into a corner of the room, desperate to escape your goodly weapon. You walk over to the coffin and look inside. You are overjoyed to see as well as 25 gold pieces, an object that the ghoul was using as a headrest, a bronze hammerhead with the letter G inscribed in it. You happily put your findings into your backpack and walk back up the stairs to leave the crypt, and return to the path to head north. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. I am the very best adventurer that ever adventured, were it not for the fact that I did die horribly. Now all I've got to do is survive the rest of the forest, and I'll have won, I think. I'm going to be taking a much more conservative approach to the tail end of this adventure. I don't care if it's a truckload of nuns about to go over the edge of a cliff. Sorry, ladies, I've got stuff to do. The path presses on northwards through the dense trees. Then it makes a sudden turn to the right and heads east. 
The path is so overgrown in places that you have to use your sword to cut through it. Your walk east is long and tiring. At last you reach a junction in the path. Looking at Big Leg's map, you decide to head north again in the direction of Stonebridge and ignore the narrow path continuing east. The path opens out into a small clearing. To your right you see a pile of branches, grass and pieces of rag, the lair of some large creature. Amongst the debris and old bones scattered about you, you catch sight of something glittering. Well, oh. Now, I know I said I wouldn't stop to help a busload of nuns going over a cliff, uh, but I didn't mention anything about shiny objects. And I do love a shiny object. It's almost certainly a trap, but I just love a shiny object. I want to know what it is. I want to know what it is. You walk over to investigate the lair, but are suddenly aware of a dark shadow being cast all about you. You hear a loud roar and look up to see a dragon-like creature with two legs and green scaly skin flying down to its lair. A bolt of fire shoots from its mouth towards you. Test your luck. I am lucky. The firebolt misses you and explodes by your feet. The creature landing in front of you is a wyvern. It looks at you and opens its huge mouth to let out another burning roar. It is about ten meters long and its thick scales look hard to penetrate with your sword. Do you have a flute? I do have a flute. I do have a flute. You reach into your backpack and pull out the tiny brass flute. You have a strange feeling that you must play it now before the enraged wyvern. As you do, a soft and gentle sound plays out from the flute and a quizzical look appears on the wyvern's face. I think I've ever seen a lizard look quizzical. I'm not convinced quizzical is in the emotional repertoire of even very big lizards. Its mouth closes and its eyelids start to droop. You are playing a magical flute of dragon sleep and the wyvern is powerless to resist its soothing song. Slowly the wyvern slumps to the ground and is soon fast asleep. You walk round the motionless wyvern and start to rummage through its lair and surrounding debris. You find a gauntlet made of plate iron, a throwing knife, ten gold pieces and a gold ring. You put the knife and the gold pieces in your backpack. If you can hear any noise in the background, listeners, I apologise. It has stopped being the sound of a cat yowling for food. And is now the sound of a cat that's won and has got some food and is enthusiastically eating it. So, will you try on the gauntlet, try on the gold ring, or leave these items and head north along the path? I will try on the gauntlet. Love a gauntlet. You slip the gauntlet onto your hand and take hold of your sword. Slicing the air with it, you feel more than usually skilled with your weapon. You now possess a gauntlet of weapon skill, which will allow you to add one point to all future dice rolls when computing your own attack strength during combat as long as you wear it. Note this on your equipment list. This gives me an effective skill of 15, which I like. I like that very much. Everything is just turning up absolute roses. Do you wish to try on the gold ring? Uh, yes, yes, obviously. Slipping the ring onto your middle finger, you are suddenly gripped by an agonising pain. Oh dear. Eventually the pain subsides, but you are unable to take off the ring. You are wearing a cursed ring of slowness, which will force you to subtract two points from all future dice rolls when computing your own attack strength during combat. So add one, lose two, giving me an effective skill of 13, which is still ludicrous.
Why should I be allowed to cut my own finger off? I mean, it's my middle finger or my left hand. I don't use it for a great deal. I mean, it is one of the less really useful fingers. I mean, it's got its uses, don't get me wrong. I still feel like I should be allowed to cut my finger off. Oh, well, uh, you must now walk north alone along the path. Walking along the narrow path, you suddenly hear the sharp crack of a twig breaking and the whispering of low voices. You draw your sword and wait anxiously with your back to a large oak tree. Then, from behind the trees opposite you, step four men and a woman dressed in green tunics. She looks menacing and they stand with swords and axes in their hands. The young woman steps forward and tells you that you are trespassing on their territory and you must pay a levy of five objects from your backpack or face the consequences. Do you wish to give them what they want or do you want to spit on the ground and fight them? What have we got? I am going to give them a silver box that used to contain poison a necklace of mouse skulls, a ring of light, a potion of stillness, and two maggoty biscuits. Enjoy! The bandit woman takes the items from you and steps back to let you pass. You head north again and soon notice the trees beginning to thin out on either side of the path. Eventually, the path leads out of the trees into a ploughed field. You are out of Darkwood Forest! The path leads through the fields to a stone bridge over a clear stream. Beyond the bridge are the small cottages and wooden huts of a village. A sign on the bridge reads Stone Bridge. You cross the bridge and see two old dwarves with long white beards standing by a cottage looking at you. Do you have the hammerhead and the handle with the letter G inscribed in them? I certainly do. And for the very first time, I get to turn to page 400. You walk up to the old dwarves and ask them to take you to Gillibrand. They eye you suspiciously, but agree to do so, commenting on your wounds and torn clothing. You got those in Darkwood Forest, I presume, says one of the dwarves, pointing at various gashes on your body with his long clay pipe. Some people never learn. Adventurers are all the same. I can't see the sense in it myself. Well, yeah, maybe if you'd seen the sense in it, You'd have gone into Darkwood Forest and got your hammer back instead of me having to do it. Huh? I don't presumably actually say that. No, I don't. You walk through the village behind the two dwarves and are aware of many dwarvish folk watching you. They begin to follow you and a procession builds up behind. There are lots of mutterings and excited whispers among the crowds of dwarves and expectant looks show on their faces. Soon you arrive at the foot of stone steps leading up to a stone building. Outside the building, on an ornate wooden throne, sits a small old man with a long beard. I mean, he's also a dwarf. You don't need to describe him as a small old man. It's really weird. He loves a small old man, Ian Livingstone. He is wearing a crown that looks miserable and holds his head in his hands. You run up the steps, taking the hammer head and handle from your backpack. At the sight of them, the old dwarf's eyes light up and he jumps to his feet. Taking them eagerly from you, he starts to shout, My hammer, my hammer, we are saved! Now, my people, we are ready to fight the trolls! The whole crowd erupts into cheering, waving their axes and swords in the air. You tell Gillibrand of Big Leg's misfortune and why you decided to continue his quest, and of all the monsters you've encountered on your way. 
Gillibrand listens and frowns at the news of Bigleg, his faithful servant. Then he opens a drawer in the base of the throne and reaches into it. He pulls out a small silver box and a golden-winged helmet and hands them to you. The helmet is worth hundreds of gold pieces and you place it proudly on your head. A great roar of approval comes from the crowd. You open the silver box and find dozens of jewels and gems. You put these in your backpack and wave to the happy dwarves of Stainbridge. Your quest is over and you are now wealthy beyond your wildest dreams. The end. Well, I managed to find the right path through the Forest of Doom, which is thrilling. If only I hadn't been beaten to death with a bit of wood halfway through. We could chalk this up as the very first proper win for Fantastic Fights and where to find them. Sadly, however, bludgeoned by a near naked man, I can't say that. But I'm still very satisfied with how that turned out. That was lots of fun. Lots and lots of fun. I will be back in just a moment to wrap up my thoughts in a more organised way. So that was The Forest of Doom. This one is always going to have a special place in my heart because it was the first fighting fantasy book I ever played through as a child. They had a whole bunch of them in my local library, and when I happened across them, this was the the earliest book they had on the shelf. They didn't have Warlock or Citadel of Chaos. I picked it up, took it home, and was immediately sold. I'm not sure how long it took me to go through the library's entire stack of game books, but probably a couple of months. It's weird. Without The Forest of Doom, I feel as though my life could have been very different. It's one of those important fulcrum points on which my whole personality and life experience pivoted. Perhaps if I hadn't read it, I'd even now be some kind of braying marketing executive with a cocaine habit and a compensatory sports car. So even though my life hasn't exactly panned out brilliantly, I I do feel like I owe Ian Livingstone a sincere debt of thanks for avoiding that particular fate. There's always a little trepidation when you find yourself re-evaluating something foundational from your childhood. I think for every labyrinth and dark crystal that holds up wonderfully, there's a Star Wars droids cartoon or Thundercats that remind you that children are idiots and they like all manner of awful guff. Happily, The Forest of Doom was one that I've played through as an adult before and really enjoyed, so that trepidation was less pronounced than with some articles of personal cultural significance. Uh, It also meant that I had a little bit more confidence than usual that I might be able to navigate my way through the twists and turns towards a decent, if not necessarily the best, ending. Sadly, as we've just heard, a psychotic barbarian with a length of two by four did me in along the way, so I couldn't actually complete this one legitimately. However, despite that, I still felt a real rush of excitement when I realised that I'd managed to find the location of the second part of the hammer. I genuinely wasn't expecting it to hit me quite as hard as it did, but I think having experienced disappointment in the two previous episodes, that sharpened the experience this time considerably. Also, cheating to win, that also gave me a little rush of nostalgia. I certainly didn't complete this book fairly when I played it as a small boy. Still, 
I do think my first honest win would have been really nice, especially looking ahead and realising that we might well be in for a run of absolute disasters before I get to anything with a with a chance of making it through just on a first playthrough. Also, if I had managed to beat this fairly, I wouldn't have had to yank out a nose hair, and that was genuinely very painful. I was really pleased to have done so well picking magic items at Yaz Tromo's tower. It's kind of a parallel system to the magic spells in Citadel of Chaos, but with slightly less opportunity to make a real hash of things by just picking the same spell over and over again. Citadel of Chaos doesn't give you any real clues to the relative utility of the various spells. And you can, if you're an idiot, like I was, just end up taking entirely the wrong spells to maximise your chances of making it through. I think there's a tacit implication that Yaz Tromo's various magical trinkets will have precisely one use in the game book. And with a starting goal of 30, you can afford to take a few risks, which is nice. The Forest of Doom is a distinct departure from the first two books in terms of being an outdoor wilderness setting. So Warlock of Firetop Mountain is a classic dungeon with an ecology that could be politely described as making absolutely no sense. Citadel of Chaos is this weird little castle, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but does have a layout that reflects how people actually design buildings. Forest of Doom takes this to a whole new level by presenting a location where the bulk of the encounters have been carefully tailored to the environments that you're presented with. There are a lot of natural hazards, some of them fantastical, but some of them just quite mundane. There's a wild boar, a hunting party, some bandits, some hillmen. These all provide examples of the sort of grounded encounters you might expect in a wild, untamed forest and the surrounding plains and hills. Even the more fantastical adventures are designed to make sense in the setting. There's a ghoul in a small crypt, an ogre in a cave, and an ape-man living in his crude treehouse. These are all encounters that intrinsically make sense. It is a pity in this playthrough I didn't encounter some of the more odd stuff, because it, it is there. For all that Ian Livingstone is trying to present a believable world for the player to interact with, he still can't resist throwing a few memorably weird and wonderful set pieces. There's a cavern where strange clone workers mindlessly tend a fungus garden at the behest of a fire demon. I mean, that's great. There's a boulder that turns out to be alive and a classic witch's cottage in the woods. Uh, So I'm a little bit sorry not to have been able to show off some of those encounters. The way the book is laid out makes it a bit easier than previously to explore an area more completely. There's a few clever layout tricks, meaning that you can sometimes double back on yourself to work through areas you might have missed the first time. It's also an explicit mechanism to allow you to return to the start if you don't find both bits of a hammer although you do have to test your luck to do so. I think that's a really nice touch because hopefully you've got some gold, maybe some magic items that will help make the second run through a bit easier so that you can focus on trying to find the bits you've missed. In terms of the monsters being a bit more naturalistic, like the barb worm we meet very early in the adventure, it's interesting that Ian Livingstone has previous form on this. He designed some D&D monsters for the Fiend Folio, which is the oddball second monster collection for Advanced Dungeons and Dragons first edition. And a lot of his creations for that book, such as the Assassin Bug and Throat Leech, they're quite naturalistic. And I think this makes a lovely contrast with Steve Jackson's more gonzo tendencies. You won't find any knife throwing cheese wheels or 
black elf sommeliers here. And that helps give the book a very strong identity that's distinct from everything that came before it, which is really, really important. This is something that will continue for the next several books as the authors worked really hard to give each fighting fantasy book its own unique flavour. And I think it's one of the biggest strengths of the series. Overall, I'd say that The Forest of Doom is in some ways my favourite so far. Although I absolutely love the meticulous game design of Citadel of Chaos, and it is the only book where you can go through without fighting anything if you make the right choices, I find the way Forest of Doom manages to feel so expansive is just amazing. Darkwood Forest feels huge and mysterious, and there's tremendous flavour in there right from the beginning. The other element I love is that it doesn't feel arbitrary, even though it totally is. I think because you've got a bit more freedom and you can explore and backtrack a little bit more, it gives you the illusion that you can systematically comb through the forest for the items you need, even though really you can't. If I have any major criticism, it's that it doesn't feature a really brilliant climax. There's no sort of significant battle at the end. Zagor and Balthus Dyer are amazing villains and taking them down feels like a real accomplishment. This time there's a wyvern, but you don't actually have to fight it. And the fight for the second hammer piece, it's not even that hard if you don't have the holy water to take the ghoul out instantly. On the other hand, I guess finishing every book with a complex multi-part fight against the wizard, that would get repetitive. So I do appreciate the change of pace, even if it does make the last few encounters feel curiously low stakes. And that's it. I hope you've enjoyed this tour through the Forest of Doom as much as I have. Next time we'll be doing something completely different, a trip into outer space. Uh, Steve Jackson invites us to take a ride on Starship Traveller. If you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter at HJDoom. I don't read Twitter because everything is terrible in all sorts of ways, but I do check messages and mentions periodically, so I will see it if you tweet at me. Uh, I'd like to thank Haunted Phonograph for hosting this podcast, and I also co-host a horror podcast with Richard DeValmont called Bella Lugosi's Shed, so give that a listen if this isn't enough middle-aged white nerd for you to be going on with. Thanks very much for listening, and take care.